Please have that passage open in front of you in 1 Peter. And as many of you know, we've been going through this letter. And uh, we now come to verses 11 and 12, and godly living under pressure. And really this next section in the letter that we have before us runs from that verse, verse 11, all the way through to verse 20. And as you see, it's full of very vital and important truths. But within that section, verse 15 is actually very pivotal. And it says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And the word silence in that verse means to take accusations out of the mouth of your adversaries. means to reduce them to silence. Peter also speaks of the ignorance of foolish men, and that is those who are willfully ignorant of the truth of God, who have no regard for his word, no regard for the Lord, who are critics of believers. It's a foolish position, but they are vehement in it. They attack the truth. And Peter says that the way to silence them is not necessarily by what you say, but how you live, to live godly, to do that which is right in the Lord's sight. And friends, I would say that this is so incredibly relevant to us in these challenging days in which we live. One of the greatest tools for commending Christ, for reaching out, is our lives, the way that we live. Now, of course, we have to proclaim the gospel, and we have to proclaim Christ, and we have to preach of him, speak of him, declare him, and we must do that faithfully and earnestly and take those opportunities as they're granted to us. That is clear. The truth declared, explained, applied, but the power of the gospel is also demonstrated in changed lives. Godly lives silence critics. And if you look at verse 12, Peter says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. I think that's an incredible verse. Because not only do godly lives challenge the critics, but actually under the Lord's hand can be a means of bringing them to glorify God. Faithful gospel witness must be made up not only of, of what we say, but by consistent godly living. And we live in a society, dear friends, which is full of those who seek to oppose the gospel, who criticize Christians. You know, we certainly have our critics here. The opposition to the truth of the gospel we know is widespread, it is loud, it is getting louder. And it's really permeated every level of society. And we would say that opposition to the gospel, that standing against the things of God has gained a stronghold on many of the institutions in our land. Critics are on every side. And one of the greatest areas of vulnerability and the point of accusation comes in what we do, how we live, how we are. And friends, it is often the unwise at times scandalous conduct of Christians that gives so much ammunition to critics. But when believers live holy, when they live in that wisdom which is from above, when they commend Christ, then it can silence enemies, silence critics. And that's what Peter really is speaking of here in these verses. That is what he underlines. 
It's interesting, one German philosopher said this to Christians. He said, show me your redeemed life, and I might be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. Another great Scottish preacher wrote, the world takes its notions of God, most of all from the people who say that they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. And the way that we live as the Lord's people, not just as individuals, but also together the way that we are with one another as a local family of the Lord's people, the way that we are as individuals in our homes, as a fellowship, is so important. It is so important because people are watching. They're watching the way that we are. Someone said that some of us speak so loud by what we do that no one can actually hear what we say. And so Peter is reiterating really the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so you see that in verse 12, you see very much the echo of that teaching. And so a godly life is vital to please the Lord and also is a vital part of our gospel witness. Now, remember that the believers that Peter is writing to are in an incredibly difficult and dangerous situation. They've been scattered across the Roman Empire. They're in hostile pagan places. They were being severely persecuted suffering terrible trials and they were under incredible pressure sinful societies hostility against them and so how could they carry on how could they persevere and endure they needed motivation to carry on living for the lord even when everything was against them and so peter spent a, a large part of the letter in this passage explaining the immense spiritual privileges that the believer has in the Lord Jesus as a consequence of knowing the Savior. Wonderful things, staggering things, encouraging things. We've looked at them in great detail. And now he says, in the light of those privileges, you have to be faithful under fire, faithful under persecution, to live those lives that will so commend Christ, silence the critics, and demonstrate the validity, the reality of true faith. And so the impact of a righteous life, it has impact in negative and positive ways. So it silences critics as a negative side, and positively it can be that, that challenge, that witness, that brings people to believe in the transforming power of the gospel, the power of God at work in people. And so there must be that credibility which affirms the validity of our faith, which points people to the Lord Jesus. And so this passage focuses on what those lives look like. And if you look at verses 11 to 20, we're given instruction. And then in verses 21 to 25, you get the perfect example, the Lord Jesus. So tonight we're just going to look at verses 11 and 12 and the believer in the world the believer in the world. You know, as we consider our place in the world as believers, Peter really highlights our obligations, our responsibilities in three ways, three identities. And so in verse 11, he speaks of the believer as a sojourner, a temporary resident, a pilgrim, an alien. 
Then in verses 13 to 17, he speaks of the believer as a citizen. And then in verses 18 to 20, he speaks of the believer as a servant. Now, we are those things at the same time. All believers are pilgrims, citizens, and we all serve under authority. These are the spheres in which we are to live in a way that honors Christ and commends him. And the way that we live will either add fuel to the fire of criticism or it will put those fires out. We will either give cause for unbelief or we will challenge with the genuine reality of a real faith. So whether we're in the home, whether we're in the community, whether we're at school or work, at leisure, wherever we are, our lives are to attest that the gospel is real. And so that's a great challenge to us. And we have to examine our own hearts and our own lives. And so he says that we're sojourners and pilgrims. And that's really what we're looking at this evening. He says, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And it's really simple what he says. And it's two parts. You've got to discipline the inside. That's verse 11. Discipline the inside. He starts by challenging the believer to be disciplined in their walk and to guard their hearts. What is inside us will work its way out. And so it is vital to take care of that. And so we've got to live in a way that impacts the world with the gospel, silence opponents, and that needs a life of integrity. And it begins with this, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Our testimony on the outside is gained by integrity on the inside. That's where it must start. And the intensity of what he says here, he says, beloved. He loves to address his brothers and sisters like this, eight times in his two letters. And he reminds them, beloved, they are loved by the Lord and they are loved by him. They are precious to him. And so he conveys his heart for them as he sets out this challenge. He affirms their position in Christ before reminding them of their responsibility to the one who loves them. He says, since you are the beloved of God, since you are loved with such love, there should be this obedient response. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul uses the same reasoning in Romans chapter 12. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. It's the same type of emphasis. And so Peter is saying, as the beloved of God, I urge you, I beg you passionately, to obey the one who has loved you so much to send your, his son to die in your place. There's an urgency, there's a, a passion about Peter's pleas to reciprocate love with obedience from the heart. We love because we have been loved. And notice that he identifies believers as sojourners and pilgrims. The same language that he used at the beginning of the very letter, chapter 1, he speaks there of pilgrims. And he means that believers are passing through. They are temporary residents in the world. You know, I wonder if we really live like that. Or actually, are we just so focused on the here and now? 
You know, they are temporary residents in the world. They don't belong to the society that they're in. There is a difference. We have been called out. I mean, that is one of the great concerns, isn't it? If the great thing that we promote as Christians is that we're so much like the world, you won't see any difference, there's a great problem with that. You know, Peter says we are foreigners, we are outsiders, we are citizens of a different world. Paul says it in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as believers, we can never truly be comfortable in this world because we don't belong here. That is one of the costs of the privileges that we have been given in Christ. And that's why often salvation is described when a person is saved, they're taken out of the kingdom of darkness and they're placed into the kingdom of God's dear son. It's an amazing transfer, a wonderful privilege to be redeemed. But as a citizen of heaven, we are in this world, but we are not of the world. We shouldn't love the things of the world. We are strangers, sojourners, aliens, and we must bear witness to the kingdom of light. One commentator explains that the word used means to live alongside the house. So in other words, it says that believers live alongside the people who belong here. You happen to be living near to those who are at home in this place, but you don't belong. You're a non-citizen. And at the time of writing, the word came to mean a person who is in a, a foreigner in a land that is not his own. And sojourners, they are travelers moving around. They are passing through. They are not founded in this place. They're looking elsewhere. Hebrews 13, 14. Here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. We are a people who feel that our true home is somewhere else. And so as believers, the people to whom Peter wrote were scattered among people of other beliefs, values, morals, religions. Christians have always had to live in that situation. But they are not of that world. And we must remember that we take our cue not from the world, but from the Savior and from his word. And our lives must demonstrate that. So Peter reminds us that we are sojourners, we are pilgrims, we are aliens, and as such we must be disciplined in our inward lives if we're really going to impact the world. And to do that, Peter gives this simple command to abstain from fleshly lusts. Now, what does it mean? Abstain. It means to keep your distance from fleshly lusts, the desires of your fallen nature. You know, when a person is truly saved, they're given a new heart. They've been made new. They've been washed. They've been given new desires after the Lord. They're a new creation. However, we still have to battle the flesh. The new man has to battle. We have to hold ourselves away from the fleshly lusts which is so often fed by what we see and the images all around us. You know, there is so much now that can cause us to stumble in this area. Our society is so corrupted in that way, so sexualized. And so it's a great challenge, and we need the help of the Holy Spirit to enable us to overcome. One preacher says, In our fallen world, the corruption of bodily desires for food, drink, sex, sweeps over us like a flooding sewer. 
And the apostle calls Christians to keep away from the compulsive urgings of sexual music, the seductions of pandering commercials, the sadism of pornographic films and literature. In fleshly temptation, the devil promises life, but he assaults against life. He would devour our souls. And I think the danger is that we don't see the seriousness of that battle. And so we flirt with these things. We allow them a foothold. And then we see the ruin that it can bring. Abstain from fleshly lust. Well, the fleshly lust as a general terms that covers the strong cravings of our sinful nature. Think of Galatians 5. It gives specific examples. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. These things are the opposite of what Peter has been speaking of earlier in the chapter, where the believer is to desire the pure spiritual milk of the word, to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. And so we've got to battle against these things. The problem is you talk about this and you're classified, oh, extreme. You know, you're extreme to talk about things like that. Just go with the flow and, you know, take it easy and just allow these things to come in. We don't see the seriousness and the danger. And that's why Peter is so strong in his warning. Because he says, verse 11, why is this so important? Why should you abstain? These things war against the soul. They war against the soul. And I, I can't urge you to see the importance of this, the seriousness of this. Fleshly lusts and the desires they create war against the soul by their very nature. And so it is the very nature of your unredeemed flesh to war against the spiritual new life that God has given Paul describes this in Romans 7, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. He says there's this war, this conflict, this, this battle, the principle of God's truth, the holiness of God, the purity, waging war against it is my unredeemed flesh which wants to draw me back into those things. James speaks of it. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? And so there is a raging war, a serious spiritual battle, fleshly lust battling your soul, seeking to provoke you to sin. It is a real spiritual warfare. And again, I just don't think that believers have a, an awareness of the intensity of this battle. You know, you look at the situation today and the low ebb of spirituality. Why is that the case? Because we don't really take these things seriously. We don't see the danger of them. The soul is the real you. And the fleshly lust wages war against you. It's not just the odd battle, but the sense is it is a lasting, involved campaign the imagery is of an army attacking you, to capture you, to enslave you, to destroy you. 
And it's not just a little bit of aggression here and there. It is continual attack. It is malicious. It is ongoing. It is relentless. And Peter says, Christian, wake up to this. Wake up to what is taking place. Wake up to the threat. Stay away. Abstain from fleshly lust. Don't give them a foothold in your life. And he says later in 1 Peter 4, 2, no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. He says, you've lived long enough in the lust of the flesh. That is past. It is time to come away from that and to pursue the things of God. 1 John 2, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. You can't put it clearer than that. Stay away from it. The world will do what it can to draw you in. It makes it so attractive. But do not be unaware, it is only trying to destroy you. Do you know there's a great work that John Bunyan wrote And it's not Pilgrim's Progress. That's always the one that people think of. Not as many are as aware of his work, The Holy War. And it's an allegory. And Bunyan, in that work, pictures a city, and it's called Mansoul, represents the soul. And he describes the city as being surrounded by high walls. And the enemy wants to attack Mansoul. There's no way to get over the walls, and so the only way the enemy can get in is through the few gates. And it's an excellent picture of the fact that the only way Satan can get in is through the gate of fleshly lust, fallen sinful desires, through things like the eyes, etc. And if you battle at the gate, if you battle to keep it shut, you can overcome his assaults. The problem is we leave the gates open. So how do you do this? Galatians 5.25, if we live in the spirit let us also walk in the spirit we need that divine help to endure to battle to press on it is so important to learn the lesson the battle is often lost on the inside before it's ever lost on the outside you know so many of those leaders who have fallen badly who have disgraced the church with all manner of immorality had fallen in their minds and hearts long before it manifested itself on the outside You know, and that's where we need to be serious about the battle. To wage the warfare and the weapons to do that, they're not carnal, they're not fleshly, they're spiritual. And so, friend, wake up to the spiritual warfare you're in. You know, if we really understood it, if we did, we would not live as we do. We would not treat this world as a playground. We need to put the armor of God on day by day. So let me ask you, how are you doing in that battle? Are there things in your inside life which you have allowed entrance which you know are a problem to you, which you know are working against those things which are good and right in God's sight? See the danger. Take up the battle. Cry out to the Lord. Don't allow the enemy to gain ground. And so as sojourners, as pilgrims, we are passing through. We must live those godly lives which silence the critics, and it all begins with what is happening in your heart. So discipline the inside. And then secondly and finally, that will then show itself godly behavior on the outside. Verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, 
that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And so Peter is simply saying there, make sure your behavior before others is honorable, is excellent, is noble, is winsome, gracious, fair, beyond reproach. And so he's talking here of that external behavior, what people see outstanding living amongst the unsaved world. The quality of our transformed life by the grace of God has to be seen, has to be evidenced. You know, you cannot be a secret disciple. And the way we live is key to our witness. There must be inner purity, as one says, which leads to external fruitfulness. And what is the purpose of it? In the very things that they want to try and use to discredit you, The believer is to prove them wrong and demonstrate the power of the gospel. And so Peter speaks of the way in which the world tries to slander believers, to mark them out as evildoers. There's going to be hostility from this unregenerate, simple society. That word evildoers, it is so strong, it speaks of a very wicked person who should be punished. That's what they'll say about believers. It's what they are saying about believers. You know, at the time of writing, it was not uncommon for believers to be abused verbally wherever they went, even just walking down the street. They were despised, they were distrusted, they were hated. All sorts of accusations came against them, conspiracies made up about them, those who loved the Lord, and it was intense like this at the time of writing. They were accused, for example, of being cannibals. The Lord's people were accused of being cannibals because it was rumored that they ate flesh and murdered children. They were said to be revolutionaries. They were said to be guilty of constantly plotting against Rome and any authority. Perhaps one of the more bizarre things, they were accused of atheism because they would not worship the Roman idols or the emperors who claimed to be gods. They were accused of immorality, of incest, They were said to be those who wrecked homes. Believers were also, and this is so important to know today, believers were also said to be those who wanted to start a slave rebellion because the slaves who were converted were treated with a new dignity of life in the churches and it threatened the pagan social structure. It's important to know that when you have all manner of things said against believers. The believers were being mocked, accused, abused, slandered. And Peter is saying that one of the most effective responses is just to live to the glory of God, to live life commending Christ, to be blameless. And Peter says that in the Lord's purposes, the effect of this is that they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. As they see that consistent, faithful, Godly testimony over a period of time, they may glorify God in the day of visitation. You say, what does that mean? The day of visitation is a really important phrase. You know, if you were to look through the Old Testament, you'd find that it's also a very common phrase. It's an indication here is that it is a, a visitation of God, a time when the Lord comes. In the Old Testament, it speaks of the Lord visiting people for two reasons. One being blessing, one being judgment. And so God would visit either to bless or to judge. So Isaiah 10 verse 3, God comes in judgment. What will you do in the day of punishment? 
and in the desolation which will come from afar. Jeremiah 27, 22, it speaks of deliverance, of blessing. They shall be carried to Babylon. There they shall be until the day that I visit them, says the Lord. Then I will bring them up and restore them. And there are many other instances where the Lord either visits to bless or he visits for judgment. But in the New Testament, all of the uses refer to a visit for redemption, for salvation. So Luke 1 verse 68, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Luke 7 16, speaking of the Lord Jesus coming, God has visited his people. Luke 19, 44, speaking of the time when judgment will come because you did not know the time of your visitation when Jesus came for salvation and deliverance. And so the New Testament has the emphasis of redemption when speaking of visitation, speaks of salvation. And so I would agree with those who say that what Peter means here is simply this. When a believer's consistent, faithful Godly life is seen by an unbeliever. If the Lord is pleased to save that unbeliever, visits them for salvation, they will glorify God when they remember the testimony of that witness. And so when the grace of God begins to work in their life, when they're enabled to repent and believe, they will glorify God for the faithful believers who impacted their lives. You know, that's a beautiful thing. And it's amazing when you hear people's testimonies and they say, I was so impacted by such and such. Their consistency, their love for the Lord Jesus. And that's what the Lord has called us to, that kind of life. You know, one commentator gave a, an example which really impacted me. There was a couple called Herb and Ruth Klingen who spent time in an appalling Japanese internment camp during World War II. And the camp was in the Philippines. And during their time there, they saw the most horrific things. They saw murders. They saw people starving to death. They saw torture like you would not believe. And these two believers were there. And in his diary, Herb describes those three years. And in particular, he mentions a man in that camp called Kanishi. And this Kanishi was the most ruthless, hated of the Japanese authorities. He was brutal. And he was evil. He was committed, uh, uh, committed awful atrocities against people. And this Herb Klingen writes, Kanishi found an inventive way to abuse us in the prison. He increased the food ration, but he gave us unhusked rice. You see, eating the rice with its razor-sharp outer shell would cause intestinal bleeding that would kill in hours. And we had no tools to remove the husks and doing the job manually by pounding the grain or rolling it with a heavy stick consumed more calories than the rice would give us. And so it was a death sentence for all internees. But such was the hunger in the camp, the people would eat anything, even such as this, even knowing it would kill them eventually. Eventually, the Klingons were amongst those who were liberated from the camp by General Douglas MacArthur on February the 24th, 1945. In fact, it was the very day that Kanishi had marked out as the day when he would kill them all. But they were delivered. Now, Kanishi escaped capture. But Herb closed his testimony with this. 
He said, years after the war, we learned that Kanishi had been found working as a groundskeeper at a Manila golf course. He was put on trial for his war crimes and he was hanged. But before his execution, he professed conversion to Christianity, saying that he had been deeply affected by the testimony of the Christian missionaries that he had persecuted during that time. You see, in the day when God was merciful, even to such a sinner like that, when God visited him for salvation, he remembered the outstanding godly lives of the Lord's people, even under the most intense persecution, by their honest behavior before pagan slanderers and accusers. They became the means that pointed him eventually to the Savior. Friends, we have incredible privileges as the Lord's people, but we also have amazing responsibility to live godly lives in a fallen, broken, hostile world, to fight those things which would ruin our hearts so that our lives reflect the transforming power of the gospel and show something of the Lord Jesus. And so the question is, how are you doing in that? How am I doing in that? It is my prayer that the Lord would enable us to be a people who really would live like that. And as we glorify God, that we would impact others for the gospel. But we can't do that in our own strength. We need the Lord and we need his grace. And I pray that he would grant it to us. And you know, if you're here tonight and you're not a believer, you need to know that outside of Christ, there is no hope for you. But those true blessings and riches of knowing the Lord can be yours if you will trust him. Repent of your sin and come to the Savior and to know that great grace at work in your life. Because for all that we face in this life, there is an eternity to come to be with Christ, which is far better. And so may the Lord make us faithful now as we fix our eyes on that great glory to come. Amen.